Thank you very much. It's good to see you today. Glad you could be here. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 1. So we celebrate our God and Father on this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you all. Um, The title of the message today is The Courageous Image of God. We're going to be talking about manhood in light of Father's Day. Um, Personally, I'm a little uncomfortable with the title uh, because I don't consider myself personally very courageous. And yet, um, the reality is the Bible talks a lot about courage with regard to manhood. And hopefully, as we look at this this morning, it will encourage our fathers uh, to be courageous in their fatherhood as well. Um, when I think about my own dad, um, I wore this tie this morning. I don't usually wear this tie because I don't like ties that have words on them and things like that in church because I don't want them to be distracting or call attention to them. But it says uh, Tabasco on this tie. And when I think of my dad, I think about the fact that he loved hot sauce. He loved spicy food. He loved hot peppers. But whenever he ate those things, he would start hiccuping. It made him hiccup. And the odd thing about it is, I do the same thing. (laughs) And so I'm like my father in that regard. Um, But one of the things I appreciated about my dad is that he told me a story when I told him when I was 17 that I felt like God was calling me into the ministry, that he wanted me to be a preacher. And he said, well, you know, when you were first born, you were born premature and you were very small. And there was this possibility that you wouldn't make it. And so when I rode up with you on that hospital elevator, I prayed and I told God that I would give him to you if if he would let you live. And that meant for him that I would become a preacher. And that's exactly what happened. I became a preacher. And so I am where I am today in one sense because of my dad. And maybe many of you could say the same thing in one way or another. Well, like we did on Mother's Day, uh, we took the opportunity on Mother's Day to talk about womanhood, and today on Father's Day we want to talk about uh, manhood, even as we talk about fatherhood, because in our culture there are so many uh, confusing things about uh, the issue of womanhood and the issue of manhood, and what I'd like to talk about are things that highlight the physical aspect of the reality of manhood as well as the practical aspect of manhood, and then finally, the importance of redeemed manhood. Now, the little meme there says, base jumping, real men don't use parachutes, which obviously raises the question, what is a real man, right? Um, Because we all have all kinds of ideas about what it means to be a real man. Um, But at least one thing that the Bible encourages us to realize is that there's a sense in which men are to lead and not being afraid to do the right thing in the face of danger. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean jumping off, you know, um, the side of a cliff without a parachute, but it does mean taking some risks, doing some what could be dangerous things in various ways. But when I think about my own life, I realize my own weakness, my own failure in various ways. And so um, my reminder for all of us as men and as fathers is that Uh, There are no perfect men and no perfect fathers. Now, the reality is there are some 
excellent fathers and men that we might can think of readily that we could say, I'd like to be more like that guy as a man and as a father. But there are others who are on the other end of the spectrum that are either absent or abusive, and we would say, I don't want to be anything like that man or that father. Or there's a lot of men in the middle and a lot of fathers in the middle that would say, I have some strengths and some weaknesses, but I know I'm not everything I should be. And the good news is God, as I've said before, can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I'm thankful that he does that. We all have room to grow, and yet it takes a lifetime to become the man that God calls us to be. Therefore, we all need God's grace. We all need encouragement, whether we're women or men, husbands, uh, excuse me, husbands, fathers, or wives and mothers. We all need God's help and God's encouragement. And so that's what I want to try to do this morning. As we look at the first three chapters of Genesis, we're not going to read all three chapters entirely, but I want to look at a few verses in each of these chapters just to remind us of some things that are important, especially with regard to Father's Day and manhood, and especially in light of where we are as a culture, because there are so many uh, interesting things at best and wildly crazy things at worst um, going on in our culture. And so the first thing that I'd like to do is to talk about the fact that when we think about the question, what is a man, we need to realize that it starts with the question of biology and the issue of the physical characteristics of a man. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to read verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1 obviously is the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, the creation of plants and animals. And then finally, on the sixth day, the creation of man. And we obviously are told that everything came into existence by the word of God and that he had a good purpose in it all. And so in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in order to fully understand what that verse is saying in verse 27, you actually have to read Genesis chapter 2, because Genesis chapter 2 goes into more detail what it looked like for God to create man as male and female, because in this sense, in verse 27, when it says man, it's talking about mankind in general. Then it says that mankind was made up of male and female. But in verse 7 of chapter 2, it talks about the creation of man as male and how that played out and how God later on uh, created woman out of the man. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2, then the Lord God formed man, speaking of Adam, man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then obviously later on in verse 22, it says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So chapter 2 goes into more detail about what God did as it's spoken of in chapter 1. And so um, just focusing on men... Uh, And fathers uh, today, I'll just simply say, 
the bottom line is God created us. God created men. And he created us as males distinct from females. It's one or the other. And he created men to image God as a man. Just like he created women to image God as a woman. And he created men and women to play a role in terms of ruling over creation. Man is to play a certain role in ruling over um, all that God has made, and women play a certain role in this ruling over all that God has made. Now, in our day and time, uh, more and more the idea of manhood and the traditional roles of men is under attack. We hear um, things like, or phrases like toxic masculinity. Now, there certainly is a kind of toxic masculinity when we're talking about uh, fathers who abandon their families or abuse their families or whatever. Certainly, uh, that is what you could put into the category of a toxic masculinity, a, um, a bad kind of maleness playing out in various ways. Unfortunately, some people seem to be actually using it in terms of the idea that masculinity in and of itself is toxic, inherently toxic. Um, Some people use the same um, kind of approach to the word patriarchy. It's used by some simply to mean that um, men are the head of their homes and that sort of thing. Others see it as an issue with men being in power and therefore inappropriately subjugating women. So what I'm saying is, um, words that in the past, like masculinity or patriarchy, uh, were seen in a positive light legitimately when appropriately understood and appropriately um, lived out, uh, now are becoming more and more in the category of, for many people, not everyone, uh, a perspective on men and a perspective on men leading in the home and in other areas as being a negative thing is inherently uh, dangerous to women and children and, and our society. And we have to be careful of that, obviously. Um, and so it's helpful to think about what does the Bible say? Because God's opinion is the most important opinion. And so when we try to answer the question, what is a man? You know, some people would say a man is someone who can grow a full beard or a man is someone who can bench press 200 pounds or a man is someone who can have a child or handle his liquor or win a fight or have six-pack abs, or in our day and time, it's just someone who identifies as a man. Man is anyone who says he's a man, Um, which means a man is whatever we want him to be. And that's not true. It's not reality. And truth, one way to translate the Greek word truth is reality. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he means I'm the reality. I will show you and tell you what is truly real. Um, The first point on here is about biological or physical manhood, and I have this up here, 1X plus 1Y, you are a guy. Now, I got that from the Babylon Bee. Some of you know the Babylon Bee. It's a uh, Christian news satire service where they use humor to... Um, expose and critique ideas and practices in in our society. And they came up with signs you might be a man. 
There's 11 of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but a few of them are. Uh, you might be a man if you pretend to like cigars, even though they make you smelly and, and uh, make you sick and that sort of thing. Um, they say you might be a man if you're able to think about nothing for long periods of time. Um, or you might be a man if you go to the refrigerator looking for the milk and it's right there in front of you and you say, Honey, where's the milk? You might be a man because you can't find it. Or you might be a man if you can't do anything without the help of your wife. You know, So those are the kinds of things that they just playfully say about uh, being uh, a man. Um, but at the end they say, the sign that you're a man or you might be a man is if you have X, Y, chromosomes. You have one X, one Y, you are a guy. And that's the idea that our manhood, first off, is rooted in physical reality, biological reality, that uh, women have XX chromosomes, we have XY chromosomes, which are DNA molecules with our genetic code. And so we have a physical reality that distinguishes men from women. And God has designed it that way. And it's important because when Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord God formed a man out of the dust or out of the dirt or out of the ground. Uh, He's saying that man has a physical makeup. And therefore, manhood is something that you can see when a baby's born. You don't have to wait until the baby learns how to talk then asking the child, what are you? No, you can see that when they're born. And it's important that we understand that because our society is getting away from that, thinking that um, manhood ultimately is about uh, what you feel, uh, not the fact of your biological or physical makeup. And so um, manhood is certainly at least a physical reality, biological reality, but it's not simply a physical or biological reality. And so if you would look at chapter 2 again, I want to look at verses uh, 15 through 18 because when we think about manhood, part of it is physical, but the most important part of it is practical in terms of what did uh, God um, define manhood to look like. He, He designed man physically, but he also defined man in terms of what men are to be about, what we are to do. And it says in chapter 2, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man, this is after he made him out of the dirt, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So we can say man was created and given a job. The job was to keep the garden. Man was created and given a command to keep. Do not eat from this tree. Man was created and given a woman to care for. And so you can at least see that the, the man was given responsibility, a job, uh, a command to obey, and a woman to care for. And so that's the second point about um, 
manhood is that it has a very practical uh, side to it that is that is that comes out of the physical side of it. It's the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, and obviously the key word there is responsibility. Um, for those of you who've seen the Lord of the Rings um, movies or read the books, you know about Frodo, who's the little hobbit who at one point in the Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first book and the first movie of the story, um, which centers around the whole idea of this ring that is a ring of power that is actually evil and needs to be destroyed. And you've got this scene where uh, these different characters in the story are debating how are we going to do this or who's going to do this? Who's going to go to Mordor and throw the ring into the the, uh, fire so that it can be destroyed and eventually... Frodo steps forward and says, I'll take it. I'll take the ring to Mordor. What does he do? He voluntarily takes responsibility for the destruction of evil. And Gandalf says, I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. Now, there's a difference between Frodo and men. Men do not volunteer. Men have been enlisted to do certain things. We've been enlisted to take on jobs, to obey God's word, to care for women. That's not something we volunteer for. That's something we have been enlisted to do. But the reality is we need to consciously say, I'll take it. I'll do it. I'll give my life to it. Um, Doug Wilson is the one who came up with this phrase that I'm using here um, where he says, Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. The glad assumption or or the glad taking upon myself of sacrificial responsibility. Um, Joe Rigney wrote a book about C.S. Lewis and about what C.S. Lewis believed about certain things. And at one point in the book, He talks about how um, C.S. Lewis understood headship in terms of a man wearing a crown of thorns. You know, uh, years ago, people would say, the man is the king of his house or the, you know, uh, or whatever. And we would have this picture of men with a crown on their heads ruling over their families and things like that. Well, C.S. Lewis says, if you want to have a proper biblical view of headship, you need to make sure that crown is a crown of thorns, like Jesus wore, because it's a crown of responsibility, um, a crown that leads you to actually lay down your life for the people you are responsible for, not to use them for your own pleasure or to abuse them or things like that. And so uh, Joe Rigney, who's writing about C.S. Lewis, uh, reminds us of how in the, fir- in, in the book uh, The Horse and His, um, His Boy, um, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, uh, King Loon, I guess is how you pronounce his name, is talking to his son about being a king. And he's trying to convince his son to take on the responsibility of being king because his son says, you know, I'm a twin. Can't he be king instead of me? I don't want to be king. And the other boy, the twin boy says, yeah, yeah, let him be king. I don't want to be king. I want to be a prince. Princes have more fun. And uh, King Loon is uh, talking to his son and says, you know what? Uh, By law, 
You have to be king. You, you can't abdicate your role. Uh, by law, you are to be king. And you need to embrace that responsibility, not shove it off onto somebody else. And so King Loon says about this kingship that he's encouraging his son to take, he says, this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there is hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. And Joe Rigney said he kind of um, paraphrased that little talk by saying, this is what it means to be a man. First in, last out, laughing loudest. First in, last out, laughing loudest. Meaning, it is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. The glad part is the laughing part. The um, responsibility is to lead and to love and to lay down your life. And therefore, it's a sacrificial kind of responsibility. And so, uh, the way I would put the same thing is to say, biblical manhood is the joyful and courageous embrace of sacrificial responsibility to lead, feed, and intercede for the glory of God and the good of others. And obviously your family would be a large part of that. But I just want to touch on briefly the different aspects of that um, in light of what these men have said and obviously in light of what the scripture says. And the first thing is just, again, the idea of responsibility, uh, seeing yourself as being responsible to live a certain way or to take on a certain duty or to take on a certain role. That biblical manhood, practically speaking, requires that I embrace a certain kind of responsibility for myself and for others. It's kind of reflected, I think, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, when Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So the spirit of what he's saying is he's talking about a kind of headship that can be reflected equally in terms of Christ being the head of man, men being the head of women, and God being the head of Christ. Now, obviously, that plays out in different ways depending on the relationship between the man and the woman. But he's talking about, obviously, when he's talking about God, the Father being the head of Christ, he's talking about the idea of a role that's being taken on. Because we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal. But in some sense, God the Father is the head of God the Son. And so, therefore, he's talking about um, a kind of role that is taken on, that is something that we are to embrace as a responsibility that we have. And the Lord Jesus in his life talked about that in terms of service. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, ultimately, Christ died on the cross for sinners that we might be saved but he speaks about that dying on the cross in the context of coming to serve and not be served, which means all of his life was a service that culminated in him being willing to die 
for those he served. And in the same way, we are to see our headship as men in whatever arena that may play itself out. In Ecclesiastes, the writer there uh, gives a, a warning to young men because the reality is we're tempted in a sinful fallen world to abdicate our responsibilities and just to live according to whatever we feel like doing. And it says in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Do you hear what he's saying? He's speaking sort of sarcastically in the sense that, go ahead, young man. Do what you're inclined to do, which is to live your life according to your impulses, your desires, whatever you want to do. But just remember that you will be accountable to God for your life, for how you lived out your manhood. And so um, so another way of saying that we are all responsible as men before God to embrace what it means to be a man before God. The second part of that is just to remind us again of the, the reality that to embrace the responsibilities as men that God calls us to means that there's going to be sacrifice on our part. And that's the second part of the definition or the idea of biblical manhood, which is sacrifice. We embrace that. We realize that in order to fulfill the role that God has called me to, whether it's as a husband, father, single man, or whatever it may be, that it will involve me dying. It will involve me dying to my appetites and desires in certain ways, dying to my will for God's will to be done, dying to what I want so that I can serve my family and serve others. That's why it says in Ephesians 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Now, headship meaning to lead. And yet it says, he himself being the savior of the body. Then it goes on in verse 25 and says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that headship, leadership is what God calls us to. And yet it's a sacrifice for the good of others. But it's a sacrifice that we're to take upon ourselves gladly. It's not something where we should wake up every day and say, oh, how I wish I could just live like I wanted to. I just wish I could do what I wanted to today, even though that's the way we feel many days. If we're all honest, a lot of times we just want to do whatever we want to do because we're under the illusion that I would be happier if I just could do whatever I wanted to do. But it is an illusion. It is a lie. It's as we embrace what God has called us to, and embrace the responsibilities that we have, that we actually find God, and we find grace, and grace is connected to joy. In fact, the root of the idea of grace is that which brings joy. God gives grace to us as we seek to do His will. Therefore, He brings joy to us as we seek to do His will. And it says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, 
and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he he lived out his sacrificial responsibility. Now, was it his responsibility to die for the, the sins of man? Well, that was something that he, like Frodo, said, I will do that. It was a voluntary responsibility that he took upon himself. He did not have to die for us. He did not have to sacrifice himself for us. But he, in agreement with the Father's goodwill and plan, uh, volunteered to do that. He took upon that responsibility, even to the point of death on a cross, and he did it gladly. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. But he had to do that with courage. And as I said at the beginning, and as I highlighted with regard to the title, a lot of places in Scripture will connect manhood with courage. Because in order to fulfill our responsibilities, which requires sacrifice and and to do it joyfully, we have to have courage. And where does courage come from? Well, the context of Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 is trusting the promises of God. And so you can face danger, you can face hardship, you can face uh, incredibly unpleasant circumstances with joy if you have courage, which courage means I'm trusting God for good. I'm trusting his promises in the face of this danger and this hard thing that I have to do. In 1 Corinthians 6, 16, rather, it says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, the Greek word for act like men is just one word. It means literally to make a man of or to play the man, to play the man. You may have heard that in terms of um, the story of Polycarp, who was a early Christian martyr back in 155 A.D., who was burned at the stake. And on his way to that sacrifice, that martyrdom, he heard a voice from heaven, according to one account, that said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. There was another uh, incident later on in 1555 A.D. when two English uh, Christian pastors, uh, Latimer and Ridley, were being put to death, burned at the stake for their heresy, which was really the truth. And Latimer, the older man, said to Ridley, the younger man, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And so the idea of play the man is be courageous, be brave. And that's another way of translating that phrase, act like men. It's to be brave, to be courageous, um, to act manly in that sense. And there are all kinds of verses in the scripture that talk that way. You've got God uh, coming to Joshua as they're about to enter the promised land. And God says to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You actually see in 1 Samuel 4 where unbelievers, the Philistines, 
or trying to encourage their hearts and fighting against Israel. And they say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you'll become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the idea of manhood is very closely connected to courage. Uh, In 2 Samuel, it says, Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. I'm going to trust God for his goodness, for his sovereign goodness and his promises. And so let's be courageous and do the right thing. It says in Ezra, rise for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act, which means courage is tied to responsibility. What is your responsibility in this situation? No matter how difficult it is, be courageous and do your responsibility. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord, which means not do nothing means continue trusting God, continue doing what God has called you to do, and be courageous in that you're trusting God to fulfill his good promises in you and through you. C.S. Lewis again would say, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. He would say courage, and many others in the past would highlight courage as being the kind of capstone of virtues because every virtue, so to speak, is going to be tested and courage will have to be a part of that virtue maintaining itself in your life because it will be tested through danger and other hard circumstances. Mark Twain even said, it is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. And what he means is there are plenty of men that will go to fight, whether it's in the ring or on the battlefield, but not so many men who will exercise moral courage, standing up for what's right when it will cost them. And therefore, there's all kinds of encouragements in Scripture for us to be that kind of courageous person, not just someone who's willing to fight physically, although there might be times we might have to, but day in and day out that we're willing to do what is right, even when it's hard, even when it might cost us. The other aspects of what come to mind as I think about uh, practically what it means to be a man is uh, I thought about the fact that one of the ways that we've defined uh, eldership in light of the scripture is to say it means that we're to lead feed, and intercede. And the idea is that um, it says in 1 Timothy 3, speaking of elders, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So there's this uh, connection between um, leading and caring for the church and leading and caring for your family, which means the roles are similar, not exactly the same, but they're similar. And so I think it's helpful as men, whether we're fathers or not, but to think about the role of being men um, in terms of leading, feeding, and interceding. Jesus talks about his own shepherding, his own uh, life in terms of leading when he says in John 10, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them 
out. And there are two ways to lead. One is by telling people what should be done. And the other is by showing them. And both really go together. We're to lead by vision. This is what this should look like. And we're to lead by example. The Bible in various ways encourages us as men to lead both by vision and example in our homes, in the church, and on the job, in other places as well. The feeding part is the idea of both feeding physically, but also feeding spiritually. Uh, providing for your family and those you're responsible for, whether it's in the family, in the church, or or beyond that. So manhood requires being committed to provide. It says in Ephesians 5, verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it. The idea of nourish means to provide food for or to feed. Just like you feed yourself, you're to feed those that you're responsible for. And you're to take on the responsibility for making sure they're fed, both physically and spiritually. It says in 1 Timothy 5, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And Jesus talking to Peter before he went back to heaven after the resurrection told Peter, well, he asked Peter first, do you love me? And Peter says, of course, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Take on the responsibility for seeing that they are nourished. And so the glad sacrifice that men are to embrace is the glad sacrifice of leading through vision and example, but also the glad sacrifice of feeding, uh, whether corporately, privately, whether physically or spiritually. And then the third thing is uh, biblical manhood requires us to intercede for and to protect those under our care. Again, it says in Ephesians 5, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The word cherish there means to take care of. Obviously, it's related to the idea of providing for, but it could also be understood in terms of valuing, treasuring, and therefore protecting, just like you would a vessel that could be easily broken. And so I think that's the spirit of what the Lord Jesus says in John 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And so in that context, the Lord Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd. I protect the sheep. I don't run off when the wolf shows up. I cherish them. I protect them. I care for them. And so as uh, one of our men prayed uh, during the baby dedication, uh, the whole idea of providing and protecting is very much uh, a part of what we should be thinking about as men. Well, obviously, I think for, for many men, we could say, well, I certainly see how this relates to men as husbands and fathers, but how does this relate to single guys that aren't married, uh, obviously? Well, I think it still applies because men 
have been designed by God and defined by God so that they can be men, as God calls us to be men, whether we're married or not. The Lord Jesus was not married, and yet he was the man. Uh, Paul was not married, and so it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with being married per se. It just it applies in certain ways when you're married and when you have children, but manhood isn't simply about being married and having uh, a wife and having children. It goes beyond that. So that's why I can say things like in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, that no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And Timothy is being spoken to by Paul, and Timothy wasn't married. Be an example. Be an example to others of godliness. That's what manhood is about. Um, taking responsibility for your own life. Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He'll go on in 2 Thessalonians to uh, talk to men who were not working, to talk to men who were excusing a life of just living off of other people by saying, uh, that's not the example we set for you, and that is not uh, what you should be doing. He says in Second um, Thessalonians chapter 3, we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And so the idea is, even as single men, we can be responsible for ourselves. As single adult men, we are responsible for ourselves. We're not simply to live off of other people. And we're to take responsibility for ourselves in that respect. And we're to do so that we might give, that we might be producers, not just consumers, as someone has said. It says in Titus chapter 2, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. and all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will not be put to sh- so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So he says, be an example of good deeds. What are good deeds? Good deeds are doing what God calls us to do for the benefit of others. It's laying down our lives for the good of others. We're we're not simply asking the question, how can I have fun today? We're asking the question, how can I serve others and glorify God? How can I do good to others and glorify God? That's why in 1 Corinthians 16, again, it says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Doesn't mean you can't have fun. Doesn't mean you can't do things that are enjoyable. It just means your life is much more about other things besides just having fun. That's not what it means to be a man or a woman, just to live our lives uh, for pleasure. But that's the, that's the air we breathe in this country. It's all about defining myself as I want to and about doing what I want to do, which brings us to the last point. So um, biblical manhood is biological or physical, which means 1X plus 1Y, you are a guy. It's rooted in uh, physical realities. Secondly, it's biblical, 
or it's practical, it's the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. But finally, um, it's all dependent on and very much about a redeemed or a principled manhood. Uh, It's about uh, men with chests. And I want to explain to you what that is all about. In chapter 3 of Genesis, obviously we have the account of the fall, where Eve eats from the forbidden fruit, Adam eats from from the forbidden fruit. They are separated from God at that point. They are in sin, and God comes to them, and he tells them what the consequences are going to be. But in the midst of telling them what the consequences are going to be, he gives them a promise. He gives them hope. And he says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, serpent, and her seed, the woman. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's a picture of the cross. That's a picture of Satan bruising Jesus on the heel by being very much a part of what happened to put Jesus to death. But in the death of Christ, we have Christ himself crushing the serpent's head. And therefore, our hope lies in that. So, Genesis 3 tells us men are not now once they, what, what, what they once were in Genesis 1 and 2. Men are now fallen men. All of us are fallen men. We are now prone to abdicate our responsibility and to simply follow our desires. That's what we're prone to do. That's what our flesh wants to do. And that's why we need a Savior. If we're ever going to be the men that God calls us to be, we need to be saved. And we need to be saved by Jesus. The whole idea of Men with chess is uh, related to the idea of courage that I talked about earlier, and I think that's why <clears throat> so much of the Bible talks about courage in the light in light of manhood. But, <clears throat> excuse me, as um, Mark Twain said, there's this uh, uh, military type of courage, and there's the type of courage that is moral courage. A military type of courage is like what you would see in the movie Braveheart. Never seen the movie, but what I've heard about the story is that it's about it's a true based on a true story, loosely I guess, but it's about a man named William Wallace who leads the fight uh, for the independence of Scotland. <clears throat> and in the movie, William Wallace says, "Every man dies, but not every man truly lives," which is very true. Not every man truly lives unless they live according to what God says a man is to do and be. That's when men truly live. At one point, young William Wallace speaks to his dad, and he says, I can fight. And his dad says, I know, I know you can fight, but it's our wits that make us men. It's not just the physical fighting part, it's our wits. Now, what, he, what does he mean by wits? I don't know. But he's, he's pointing to something inside of us. He's he's pointing beyond just the physical reality of, I can fight. He's pointing to what motivates our fighting and what shapes our fighting, the heart behind our fighting, which 
is the idea more of not military courage, but moral courage, which I think is reflected in the book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. In that book, what he does is he, he says man's final quest has proved to be the abolition of man. He says, for the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. He's basically arguing that when men and a culture abandon objective truth, ultimately everyone lives to do whatever they want to do. And ultimately some men are going to have more power over the rest of men and they're going to tyrannize men because they're going to do what they want to do and they have the power to do that regardless of what other men might say. In this book, um, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that the first word in this book says, I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. And what he means is we don't recognize how important what is planted into the hearts of our kids and that the there will be certain fruit that comes from it. Don't have a whole lot of time left, but let me just say very quickly what he does is he says that there are those who will uh, look about look at a story about some tourists that are viewing a waterfall, and one tourist says, "Oh, that's pretty," and another tourist says, "Oh, that's sublime." And these people who are writing this elementary textbook says uh, the idea that a waterfall is sublime is simply an expression of what they feel. It's not an expression of fact. And so he argues that basically we're teaching kids that reality is simply what you feel it to be. There's no objective reality outside of you that your feelings are meant to correspond to. You think about what he's saying, it's very much where we are as a culture. He's saying we can either uh, see life from the perspective that um, what I feel is true, and therefore reality should be shaped by what I feel, or he's saying there is a reality out there that should shape how I feel. Do my feelings shape reality, or does reality shape my feelings? The whole idea of chess is along those lines. He talks about the fact that men have heads, men have bellies, men have chests. The head is what you think. The belly is your appetite, your instinct, your, your base drives. Your chest is your heart. It's your conviction. It's your conviction about what is true and right and beautiful. It's about reality outside of you. It's the correspondence of your heart to what is real. And he says that once you basically say there is no heart, it's all about there's, there's no heart, there's no feeling that's connected to reality outside of you. It's just you're creating your own reality by just following your own feelings. What he's saying is you end up having men whose head is governed by their bellies. 
They simply do whatever they feel like doing. He uses the illustration of what keeps a man in a foxhole. That simply the idea that he ought to fight for his country and die? Or is, the, is it the conviction that there's a reality that is worth dying for? He says it's the reality that there is something worth dying for. Just the idea that you should die for your country or you've been put there to die for your country isn't sufficient to keep you in the foxhole. You have to have a conviction, a heart-filled conviction about reality that causes you to feel a certain way that manages your baser instincts, your belly, and causes you to live a certain way. Ezekiel tells us that that's exactly what God has to do for us in order for us to be the men that he's created us to be. It says in Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. The way God, as C.S. Lewis would put it, has designed men is that our heads will rule our bellies through our chest. Our thoughts about what is right and wise will rule over our base instinct just to live and do whatever we want to do in every situation through our heart, through our conviction about reality and truth and what is worth dying for. And that's how we actually gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. Ultimately, we have to be forgiven for failing to be what God calls us to be and to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for the power to live the way he calls us to live and to trust his promises to empower us to do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just somehow use this to encourage us as men, but even as women, that you are the one who, Father, has designed us as male and female. You've defined what that should look like for men and women in terms of how we're to live for your glory and for the good of others. I pray that we would see that we desperately need you to be able to do that. We, we need to be forgiven of our sin. We need to be reconciled to you. And we need to depend on you to enable us to be the men and the women you've called us to be. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to find hope that we can be more what you want us to be through Jesus Christ through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, through trusting him and hoping in him, and that we can truly find our joy and our purpose in him and through him. Father, please speak to us. If, if there are those here who have not yet trusted you, Lord Jesus, grant them grace to turn from their sin and entrust themselves to you even this day. For those of us who have already done that, I pray that you prepare our hearts to celebrate 
you and what you've done for us and to renew our commitment to live to please you as we celebrate this Lord's Supper. We thank you for your love for us. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.